Believe it or not. The Unbelievable. Believe it. Ripley's Believe It or Not. Incomparable, inimitable, illimitable, inestimable, introducer of immeasurable, incalculable, incredible impossibilities. Welcome to Ripley's Believe It or Not cast, the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan. And I'm Brent. And this is our pre-Halloween episode. So uh, we thought it best to tell an appropriately haunting story that Ryan, I think, hits kind of close to home for you. Yeah? Yeah, it does. Uh, just by chance, I, I grew up literally across the street from from one of the most haunted places in America, according to you know people who... Uh, rank those things. And uh, it's a 180,000 square foot, five-story Gothic revival style Waverly Hills Sanatorium in South Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, It's a creepy old tuberculosis hospital built in the early 1900s, way up on a hill, uh, which is actually the highest point in the city. And that's where thousands of patients went to try and be cured for what had become an epidemic in the area, then known as consumption. And because there was no cure for the disease until decades later, many of the patients never came back. Uh, Some estimate thousands of people ended up dying there, uh, but that's only part of the fascinating history of this place. Uh, When the disease was cured, uh, the building became a a geriatric facility, which was eventually shut down due to abuse. Uh, Still later, it became the site of bizarre projects from hosting heavy metal concerts to one owner hoping to use it to showcase the tallest statue of Jesus in the world. Uh, Now the hospital hosts ghost tours for the public, and it's particularly known for its ominous death chute, where bodies were put uh, out of view from the other patients in a tunnel where they would slide down the hill to hearses waiting on the street below. So today we find ourselves in sort of outer Louisville, the largest city in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, to talk to those who have studied the sort of tales and legends of the building. C.C. Thomas is a local author who was writing a newspaper story about Waverly when she realized there were precious few resources about what actually happened there. She made it her mission to write a non-paranormal account that examines its fascinating history And David Domine is a local professor and writer who has examined the paranormal tales of the structure. And in the opening segment, you hear tour guide Scott Gray describe how he was accosted by something he can't explain, something he couldn't see that literally pushed him out of his chair. And then there's one other thing, too, Brent. what's, What's that? I also had a weird experience when I was there. Oh, no. What, what are we going to do about that? Well, I, I think we have to talk about it. Oh, okay. Well, first, let's meet Scott Gray, a volunteer who helps give haunted tours at the hospital. He grew up in the area and says he fell in love with the building, both the look and the legends, but he says he's also had some very strange experiences. We was in the OR up on the fourth floor, and we were sitting in chairs, and we was doing a private investigation during the wintertime. You know, when we don't have anything going on, we would come in and set our own equipment up, and we kept hearing this pop, pop around the room. This went on for a good, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And I'm sitting in one of those metal chairs, and you know, we got the uh, gap in between the seat and the back. And uh, about that time, I just went, pow! Now, I'm six foot two, 285 pounds, and it knocked me up out of that chair. So what hit me, hit me Ever had anything like that happen before? No, not, not hit like that before. I've been touched and had, you know, shirt tugged and all that stuff, but never 
everything like that. Uh, that scared me. Uh, I have chased uh, full body apparitions out of here. This is real as me looking at you. Um, one night we was in there doing a tour, and when we do our tours, we always keep count of how many people are in our group. I see somebody down the hallway, and I count my group. I thought, I've got a trespasser. So I chased after them. And there's only one way in and one way out. And I got to the door, and Tina was sitting downstairs. And I said, where'd they go? Where'd they go? She goes, where'd who go? Well, it was gone. So yes, people claim to have seen strange things on this site. But local author C.C. Thomas thinks the building itself, as well as its history, is much more interesting. And if you believe in ghosts, the stories may just help explain why this site's thought to be so haunted. So let's flash back to the early 1900s in Louisville, a river town where a large population is situated in a valley, which provided the perfect climate and space for tuberculosis to thrive. The disease was then known as consumption. It was highly infectious through coughs and sneezes, and it could attack any organ in the body, not just the lungs, as some thought. Chest pains, coughs, night sweats, fever, and a, a loss of appetite could all be signs of the disease, and eventually the bacteria would move through the blood or lymph nodes to destroy vital organs. Thomas reported in her book, With Their Dying Breaths, that in those years, Louisville was reporting about 6,500 cases per year. Waverly Hills opened in 1908, and by 1910, tuberculosis became an epidemic, with more than 13,000 cases across the state. Located on a high hill away from the population, Waverly was the perfect place for those afflicted to find help. Um, so my name is Cece Thomas. I am a Kentucky native, and I have been writing on and off for about 20 years. I was actually a school teacher in Kentucky for a long time, and writing was kind of my side gig. I kind of did it just for fun. And uh, that led to me getting a job at a local newspaper, which eventually led to me um, researching the history of Waverly Hills Sanitarium. Um, I found it to be a fascinating topic, and there were no books written about Waverly Hills, and so that's why I wrote the book. I could not find one source of information in one place, which also is an interesting story, and I'll, I'll tell you about that in a moment. So I uh, wrote the book. It's available on Amazon, and actually I'm getting ready to do an update on the book probably within the next um, six months or so because um, there was a young man who passed away there in the 1920s, and some papers that he had written were just discovered in um, one of his family's attics, and they gave those to me. So I'm going to be um, including some information about that. I know that most people know it today as a haunted place, but the story of the tuberculosis hospital and the hope that it gave so many people, I mean, it was really their last resort. It was the only place that they could go where they they maybe could be helped because when you were diagnosed with tuberculosis during that time, it was a death sentence and they were, they were willing to do anything in order to get well. So I kind of see Waverly Hills as a place of hope um, instead of just as a haunted place, which is what it's known for now. But I think it really has a beautiful history. The poet John Keats, actress Vivian Lee, and author Robert Louis Stevenson are just a few of the many famous names who passed away due to consumption or tuberculosis. For those who admitted to having the disease, apparently people would not admit to it because they didn't want to die anywhere outside of their home. For those who admitted to having it, treatment for tuberculosis took place at sanatoriums. And while there were no drugs to cure it, the patients were essentially prescribed a treatment of taking in as much fresh air and sunshine as possible. Many would not be able to see their families or friends, save for a possible visit day sometime down the road. 
It doesn't matter if you were a small child or if you were elderly. Once you were on the hill, as Waverly was called, you were there until you got better or until you died. Waverly Hills eventually became so large that it was a, considered a self-contained community with its own zip code. It had a post office, a water treatment facility, and workers grew their own fruits and vegetables and raised their own beef for slaughter. So they moved people to the hospital and it became a, um, almost like a commune, right? They grew their own food. Mm-hmm. They um, had like milk delivered to the end of the road. They didn't want people on the property at all. So they grew everything. Um, They would allow the nurses and the doctors had to live around the property. They were also not allowed to leave. So a lot of the houses that are along the Waverly Hills property now were once owned by nurses and doctors um, because they once you were there, you you were there for a long time trying to heal these people. You were there. Yeah. There were children who who were raised like who were born to the doctors and the nurses who were raised around the Waverly Hills property. And they even had their um, one of the the sweetest things that that I found you they there was a lot of children who had contracted tuberculosis and they put the children in a separate wing of the hospital and up on the roof they actually had a little playground built for the children um, to try to get them outside but away from the the rest of the population so it affected all ages and it it really wasn't a disease that affected the the old necessarily most people who who had it, you know, and passed away from it were fairly young. So I'm going to just step back and talk about like they did have an ups, an upstairs roof. But if you go to Waverly Hills, one of the things that you'll notice is they have these huge kind of open air porches along the front of right. it. Right. And those were open air porches. Like if you had tuberculosis, one of the things they would do with you is they would wheel you out on the porch for like eight hours a day, no matter the weather, no matter the temperature. And you would sit. That was your medicine for the day. You had to be outside breathing that air. Um, Fresh air. air, Yep. So one of the difficulties that I had in writing the book was finding any documentation about exactly how many people were there at any one time, um, how many people uh, passed away. The records do exist, but they're they're spotty. They're here and there. There wasn't like a medical board that, that took care of documentation. And most people, when they got treated, they didn't want anybody to know, um, so it was kind of spotty. But there's there are some documents that I found. For example, some years they reported that as many as 800 people passed away at Waverly Hills. I think that was the height. Like one year, I think 792 people passed away during the height of it. So how how many people would have been there? I, right. You know, it's hard to say because you know when they came, they could they would stay for months and months. Some would stay right. for years trying to get well. There, at one point, I think at the time when it was the largest, they had um, they had a women's dorm. They had um, the Waverly Hills at that time would have been mostly for like males and children. They had a separate African American center dorm that was there. They had a swimming pool. They had tennis courts. They had a dairy there at one time. I mean, it was really set up as its own kind of little city that was up there on the hill. And when people would go there, they would stay as as long as they needed to until they were cured or they passed away. Doesn't this sound like it would be some kind of amazing television show on Netflix? I mean, like it's something like a mixture of uh, M. Night Shyamalan's The Village and Richard Preston's Hot Zone. Uh, It's a sequestered group of people living out their lives in a huge hospital town where no one leaves. 
scary stuff. Maybe George Clooney could be in that. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what he's doing right now. Uh, anyway, uh, this is an epidemic now. And uh, there were laws on the books in some cities where you could not spit on the sidewalk because of this disease. And at Waverly, doctors were convinced that in order to maintain good health, the patients had to keep a positive attitude. That meant the nurses and doctors at Waverly never wanted the patients to see the bodies of the dead. And at the height of the epidemic, hundreds of people were dying there per year. That's why they built the body chute. So there is, um, I think they call it the body chute, which is a terrible thing. But um, the the theory behind it was when these people passed away, it is bad morale to let everybody else see a dead body being taken down to the um, to be taken away, um, whether it's a hearse or whatever they might have used back then. I'm not sure. So they built this um, underground passage so that the dead bodies could be taken away during the night and the the patients wouldn't have to see how many people were dying because that would you know that's not good if you're if you're trying to focus on getting well and that kind of thing so that's why the body chute was built so it's an underground passage that leads from waverly hills and it goes down the hill and it eventually ends up at the bottom of the hill where they would have a hearse or an ambulance or whatever they would use during that time to take the body away and bury it Although they did also have on property, they do have um, they do have a cemetery that is unlocked. So one of the problems that I had when I was trying to do the documentation is that nobody really wanted to admit that they had tuberculosis. And so a lot of people didn't report it. It was something um, because if if people knew that you had it, you would get reported and you would get shipped off whether you wanted to or not. Um, you had to be removed from the population. So a lot of people just didn't report it. So there's there's no real real way to know. Um, and a lot of the people who had tuberculosis didn't even have symptoms. So there's not a real way to know how many people had it, how many people even in the state of Kentucky or even in Louisville died. But Louisville had the biggest two hospitals, Waverly Hills being one of the largest ones um, in the state. And actually, I think one of the largest ones actually in the United States, because there are a lot of people who came from other states so much so that they actually had to ban people from other states coming in because it got to be um, they were having too many and they couldn't serve people. So one of the articles that I read attributed the rise of the population of New Albany, Indiana, why New Albany, Indiana became so big as a city during that time is that people were moving closer to Louisville in order to establish a residency there so that they could be admitted to the hospital. CC says there really is no way to know how many people died at Waverly, although the number is certainly in the thousands. It was in 1943 that Dr. Selman Waxman discovered a cure for tuberculosis, and it was the antibiotic streptomycin, which helped end the epidemic in the United States. Throughout the 1940s and 50s, the disease weakened and was essentially defeated here, meaning there was no further need for this massive hospital on top of the hill. Right. So after it was a tuberculosis hospital, um, it didn't it didn't close right away. Instead, it transitioned and it became, I believe, two different um, seniors. They would have called them old age homes at the time. They would have not have been senior citizen centers. It was literally an old age home. And, I, um, and it did not go by the name of Waverly Hills. One of them was called um, Woodbridge or Woodhope. Um, 
hospital for the elderly, I think. And that one was around until 1966, I believe. And oh. that was actually closed because um, they had some cases of patient deaths, not due to tuberculosis, but just due to ill care. So it was eventually closed down by the state. And then it sat empty for oh. a long time. This was a place where they were sending like... Um, you know, words of the state who were old and kind of sick. And it, it was, from what I read in the newspapers, it was not a, a place of wonderful care for these people. So it, at that time, it kind of became more of a sad um, place instead of a place of hope. It was mostly where people were just going to, to pass their last few years. But another really interesting thing about that is the hospital or the property was actually purchased by someone else and what they wanted to do with it. Are you familiar with the large um, statue of Christ the Redeemer? In, oh, uh, right. Right. I so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there was some man who, who bought the property and he wanted to create a Christ the Redeemer statue there that was going to be um, either larger than that one or certainly the largest one in the United States. But he was not able to get um, all of the all of the money raised for it. But actually, um, I talked to uh, one of the men who drew up the plans for it. And so it was it was going to be like this huge, um, he wanted it to be a religious mecca for people to come to. And, wow. and work. I know it was really interesting. That only was going on for about maybe seven to eight years at the most. This is where David Domine can fill in a little bit for us. As a local professor and author, he knows about the contemporary history of the hospital, as well as a lot of the scary legends about the place. In 1996, Robert Alberhaske bought the hospital and the land for the purpose of constructing the world's largest statue of Jesus Christ. It was going to be bigger than Christ the Redeemer, you know, in right. Rio there. It was going to be the same kind of thing, and it was going to be like a Louisville landmark. Well, he did this fundraiser. He tried to raise the millions of dollars he needed. He didn't even come anywhere close. And so he... I guess he didn't take it very well, and he tr he tried to get permission to demolish the place, but they wouldn't let him destroy the place. So he hired bulldozers to go in and dig out the foundations. He tried to make the place unstable, but it was so solidly constructed, even that didn't destabilize the building. And so he was kind of ruined, and that was in the news a lot, especially that plan for building that huge statue of Jesus. And I think that's oh. what kind of propelled it into national fame. Because then people started talking about, oh, well, that's Waverly Hills. You know, and we used to go up there, and that was a TB sanitarium. And all these stories started circulating at that time. I mean, locally it was known, but I think that's kind of what got it a, a national reputation. More and more people began to learn about Waverly Hills and its reputation. The old sanatorium became the focus of TV shows like Ghost Hunters and Ghost Adventures. Curious spectators traveled to the site and claimed to see unexplained phenomenon there. And Waverly's legend was chronicled in publications across the world. Domine says there are a few stories that stand out as particularly bizarre. I forget, but it's like the fifth floor, room 502. That's the one where people would run screaming from the room because they saw um some people reported they saw like an apparition of like a, a nurse hanging from the ceiling um others reported just an apparition of a female spirit but you had like 
like a horrifying grimace on her face. But it was all, always this room 502. And for years, that was the room people talked about. Well, not too many years ago, they finally did uh, they dig up an old newspaper article about a, a nurse who did hang herself in that room. And I don't know what her, her name was, but I've seen the article and I've talked to people who did a little, little more research, but it has been substantiated as far as I can tell that someone, uh, a nurse did commit suicide in that room. Wow. So, yeah, um, that was one of the really creepy ones. And then supposedly um, there's like a, a child spirit and they call him Timmy. And uh, um, it's usually, you know, there was one part where there's a kind of a rooftop um, kind of garden that used to be there and that's where they used to let the children play but supposedly timmy is um a boy that had died there and he like just like do kind of childish antics he you know people have um walked down there and they said like just out of nowhere like a red rubber ball comes bouncing across the rooftop i've heard that a lot and um i know people who said they've gone up there and they've done like the overnight investigation and um if they didn't see the ball come bouncing across um one person said they were up there and they said there had been some i guess condensation from the ceiling and there was a little puddle of moisture kind of in the middle of the the asphalt and they said all of a sudden they heard like splashing and there were ripples in the little puddle and then on the other side they saw like childlike footsteps uh, emerge and uh, it was like a child walking through the puddle and they left uh, wet footprints on the other side and they saw them just trail off to the rooftop where the, the kind of terrace ended and uh, it was like a child just walking away they said and a friend of mine who saw this he actually took some video and I, you can actually kind of see the foot the footprints that he no. got are you yeah. serious? David also shared a story with us about some of his friends who took a tour and spent the entire night there at the hospital. And it seemed they got a little more than they bargained for. Like I said, the couple times I've done the tour and I've done like the daytime history tours. I've done the Halloween thing where they kind of camp it up and have actors right. and stuff. And nothing, um, nothing has ever happened. I've done it three times, different kinds of tours and nothing has ever happened. But like I said, I've got good friends who go all the time, and I've um, I've never done the eight-hour kind of sleepover thing. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And I have some good friends who just did it a couple of weeks ago, and um, they said nothing really happened except they fell asleep. It was like three in the morning. They fell asleep, and uh, there were four of them, and all of a sudden they woke up. They were all in sleeping bags on the ground, and they'd been, you know, they'd been going around with their EMF readers, and they'd been taking pictures, and they had a ghost spot. They did everything, you know, but they gave up and they were tired, so they were going to take a little nap and try to get up, you know, at four or five and try again. But they kind of all fell asleep around three o'clock, and they woke up. And my friend said they all just woke up at the exact same time all four of them they sat up like straight they sat bolt upright on their sleeping bags and they looked at each other like you know why'd you wake up or did you wake me up and they heard something um kind of tinkle fell on the the floor and they noticed something like fall from the ceiling and uh they went and like and it fell like right between the four of them and it was an old christmas ornament that they said just dropped out of the ceiling just wow like like that old, is a like weird. 50s or 40s you know a sparkly christmas ornament just fell out of the ceiling and hit the ground right where they were sleeping 
In the mid-2000s, Waverly tried to reinvent itself again, at one point hosting several heavy metal bands in a concert called Sounds of the Underground. That was moderately successful, although no one has hosted another show there since. Of all these strange ideas, from serving as a geriatric center to the would-be site of a giant Christ statue, CC says that all of these things helped to keep the hospital in the news and preserve the relevant story. People came to Waverly Hills Sanatorium to survive a deadly disease. And David agrees. I've heard tons of stories, you know, and that's, um, like I said, I'm not from Louisville originally. And how I know that I'm not a, a Louisville native is I don't have stories about sneaking up to Waverly Hills when it was abandoned when you were in high school. Right. Everyone around here, they have their stories. Oh, yeah, we sneak up there under the dust shoot and drink beer. And, uh, and you know, this. And everyone has stories. So. Um, yeah. And I wasn't around to experience all that. So, but I heard so many different weird kinds of stories, and everything's just totally different. Um, but like, as far as first-hand experience, or you know, hearing from credible people that I believe, um, just a couple things I mentioned. Um, the funny thing is, I think it's, you know, the impression is is that people went there to die, and what I've discovered. And doing my research over the years, a lot of people didn't die there. A lot of people went there and they got better. I've well, met so many people. I think that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. tell, me, tell, me, tell me about that. Oh, yeah, I've met so many people. Say, oh, my, yeah, my grandmother was there in the 40s. She was there for two years and she got better and she came back. I have met more people whose family went there and got cured than whose people went there and died. Um, so that, that, I think it's kind of kind of fits into the persona of it being a haunted location. They just assumed that you went there and it was a death sentence, but it wasn't actually. A lot of people went there and they were cured and they ended up going home and living productive lives. I think it's important to note here, Ryan, that we've actually seen a resurgence in tuberculosis around the world. In fact, Cece told us she has a friend who was diagnosed with TB this year. Today, it's estimated that the disease has killed more than 2 billion people worldwide, more than all the world wars, influenza, or HIV AIDS. In India, the World Health Organization reports 2.6 million cases of the disease. Worldwide, that number is 9.6 million. It's just a shocking number. Um, now, Waverly Hills, which is included on the National Historic Register, uh, has seemed to fully embrace its paranormal past. Uh, the latest owners, Charles and Tina Mattingly, are active in the area in promoting tours, uh, sleepovers, full-out paranormal investigations of the site. Uh, but it fills up fast, so check their website if you're interested in going. I actually went on one of these tours with my family this year uh, for the first time, uh, and what was most touching uh, about the whole thing was our tour guide's assertion that the site wasn't a place uh, for dying, it was a place for healing. Uh, like both David and Cece noted, uh, we should remember the people who lived there uh, just as much as we honor those uh, who didn't. So Ryan, you just teased your, your visit there. Um, I know you have... Uh little story to tell. So let's, let's, uh, let's hear it. Spill it. Yeah. And here's the deal. I mean, I'm going to, I'll preface this with a, a little, a little caveat. I've been to a lot of these kinds of places. We've talked about this. I've never seen a thing and I'm one of those people who wants to. So, you know, I'm kind of pre, 
you know, uh, uh, program to go and see this kind of stuff, right? It's never happened. And uh, so uh, this was a, a little bit bizarre for me. And, and well, maybe I'll just, we'll just play the recording here where I explained it to David Domine. Uh, my family had gone on the tour and uh, we were specifically uh, investigating uh, the death shoot. So I toured it really for the first time, uh, probably in early May. Mm-hmm. And uh, went up there, and I did see something that was a little strange. Really? Huh, what'd you um, see? Well, and this might sound, you know, when I when I describe it, it really, but it doesn't really, I don't think, grasp how weird it was. But mm-hmm. we were in the we were in the death chute, the, mm-hmm. the tunnel, and I was in the very back of the line, and I had taken my camera phone. And just pointed it at the at the at the back, going back up into the darkness. And I was looking through. Uh, if you can picture this, you know, I had my phone out in front of my face, and I and I was looking through my phone, and I saw a very quick moving. And I thought it was uh, a moth or a, mm-hmm. a, a big bug or something that was coming at me. So much so that I I jerked. And I moved because I was, it was going to come hit me in the face, but it was an orb mm-hmm. and it was something when I looked, when I pulled the camera back, there was nothing there. Hmm. And I, and I can tell you, I've, I've tried, you know, I've done this a lot. I've done a lot mm-hmm. of things. I used to be a reporter and I had every excuse that I could to go out with mm-hmm. ghost hunters and that kind of, and I've never seen anything. And hmm. this was the only time where this was something that was really weird. Mm-hmm. And I, I pulled my my camera back, and nothing was there, and nothing hit me. And mm-hmm. I thought I thought I was going to get hit in the face by a big flying bug. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it wasn't it wasn't dust. There was nothing else that was on the that was on that screen mm-hmm. that was like that at all. And it moved so fast, and it was so bright. Mm-hmm. And and I I can't <clears throat> really explain what that yeah. was. I don't know what I saw. Uh, but I definitely reacted to it. And the best part of the story is I, I kind of yelped a bit, uh, which caused all the other 40 or so people on the tour to turn around and look at me. My own mother thought I was trying to scare everyone else, that I was just making it up. She told me to stop. She didn't believe me. So you yelped like? It, it may have been. Whatever. Yes. So we'd like to thank Scott Gray, C.C. Thomas, David Domine, and Ryan for sharing their stories with us today. So, Ryan, uh, you're from Kentucky. Have you been to the Kentucky Derby? Uh, I have uh, many times. So you can check out on our website. Ripley's.com. And learn about how, after almost 150 years, the race has turned into one of the most watched sporting events in the world. Believe it or not. Fun fact, more than 120,000 mint julep cocktails are served at Churchill Downs that weekend. And did you know that if a coin had landed the other way, the race might have been called the Kentucky Bunbury? You can find that and other amazing stories at Ripley's.com. All right, Ryan, or not. You ready? I am. All right, here's the or not section of the show. Go. In this episode, we've learned a lot about tuberculosis and sanatoriums. But one thing you may not realize is that the first sanatorium wasn't really located in a hospital at all. The Commonwealth of Kentucky is known for its bluegrass, bourbon, and horse racing, but it's also known for the world's longest cave system. Located in Mammoth Cave National Park, the system includes more than 400 miles of surveyed passageways, which is more than double that of its nearest competitor, which is an underwater cave system in Mexico. 
It's here in Mammoth Cave that the world's first tuberculosis hospital began in 1842 when Louisville physician John Krogan owned the cave and opened it up for those suffering from tuberculosis. He felt the uniformity of the temperature, which was 54 degrees year-round, and the pure air would provide a cure. So he built two stone cottages in the cave and invited 100 patients to come down, but only 10 showed up. Krogan himself suffered from the disease, but did not stay inside the cave. He chose instead to stay in a cottage up by the mouth. The 10 patients who did stay there actually became part of the tour, and people would come by and look at them when they explored the cave. Sadly, the experiment only lasted until 1843. Three of the patients died in the cave, and the others died shortly after leaving. Uh, Grogan himself died of the disease in 1849. It was all a part of a sad and fascinating history. Still, while we honor those who were lost, we also choose to remember the ones who survived. And wherever a ray of hope is shining through the darkness, we at Ripley's will be there to share the story. Believe us or not. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. I edit the show. Our executive producer is Amanda Joyner. The Notcast is recorded at the historic Herzog Studio, home of the nonprofit Cincinnati USA Music Heritage Foundation. Visit Herzog in person or sign up online at herzogmusic.com. The Notcast intro theme was put together by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. If you enjoyed this episode or, or enjoy the show at all, please go hit that fifth star on Apple Podcasts. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at ripleys. Be sure to catch the Notcast next week when we find out exactly what it takes to be a stunt woman in Hollywood. From the silent era of movies to today, we'll explore how the pioneers of stunting have always been women. That's next week on Ripley's Believe It or Notcast. Happy Halloween, by the way. <laughs>